Hey guys, check out Italian Wine Unplugged 2.0, brought to you by Mama Jumbo Shrimp, a fully updated second edition, reviewed and revised by an expert panel of certified Italian wine ambassadors from across the globe. The book also includes an edition by Professore Attilio Scienza, Italy's leading vine geneticist. To pick up a copy today, just head to Amazon.com or visit us at MamaJumboShrimp.com. Welcome to this special Italian wine podcast broadcast. This episode is a recording off Clubhouse, the popular drop-in audio chat. This Clubhouse session was taken from the Wine Business Club and Italian Wine Club. Listen in as wine lovers and experts alike engage in some great conversation on a range of topics in wine. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. And remember to subscribe and rate our show wherever you tune in. Welcome, everybody, to uh, Clubhouse Ambassadors Corner. We are um, here once again. It is a Thursday afternoon, 5.30. It's a little bit earlier than we normally do it, but we changed the time uh, just to make it easier for everyone. Um, Tonight, we have um, Antonio Capaldo being interviewed by our very own Cynthia Chaplin. And Cynthia is here with me in the booth. Hi, Joy. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right. So um, let me just, uh, you know, we, we normally do this a bit differently. So I'm going to just uh, give uh, a little bit of a, a background on Cynthia before I bring in Antonio. And uh, Cynthia was born in the USA. I think it was Ohio, right? Absolutely. Okay. Um, it's a bit cheating because I, I, I spend most of my time with you. So... <laughs> You know more than the average person. I, I do, so this is going to be hard to stick to a to a, a script here. But uh, she moved to Europe, and in 1990, she lived in Spain, uh, Belgium, England, and of course Italy. I think you were in Rome, and um, she she's a qualified sommelier with Fondazione Italiana Sommelier, an Italy International Italian Wine Ambassador, a professor of Italian wine and culture, and a certified WSET educator and she's worked with embassies corporations and private clients creating and presenting tastings events team building sessions seminars and in-depth courses and cynthia has also expanded her communication within the sector as a wine writer translator a judge at international wine and sake competitions and she now works here with us and she's the host of voices on the italian wine podcast and you do so many things. I'm not really sure where to begin here, but I think that covers most of it. I think you've covered it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, normally uh, Clubhouse, the way this goes, and I know you know, you know, we do an hour of discussion. And you are going to tell me now why you chose Antonio Capal. I chose Antonio because uh, I've, I've been a great fan of Fiuda de San Gregorio for many, many years. But it wasn't until recently um, that I was part of an old Vines conference that was held at Fiuti, uh, and I became really captivated with Antonio's passion for the subject and his determination to make old Vines into a defined term, just like bio and organic and things like that have become in recent years. 
And the old vines in Fiori de San Gregorio's vineyards are up to 180 years old. And standing in those vineyards was the most magical and humbling experience. So I just felt like it was important for all our listeners to hear about old vines and why they're special. Okay, awesome. And um, so I guess my question, I was going to ask, you know, um, if you had met him already, but you have, obviously. Um, So what kind of learning objectives do you want people to take away from this conversation? Well, as I said, I'd, I'd really like people to understand why old vines are so important. They're ungrafted, they're unaffected by phylloxera, but they also face all kinds of challenges. Um, they, they don't have a legal definition for the term of old. Climate change is their enemy. Um, they have very low yields, and so that makes them very expensive for producers to justify They have to be hand pruned and hand trained and hand harvested and it's expensive and time consuming and very difficult. And many growers would rather rip them up than replant them. So Antonio uh, was explaining to me how he's battling that. And I think it's important for people to understand how special and unique these vines are. Okay, cool. Actually, I find old vines very interesting. So this is this can be good. Um, I before I bring on Antonio, I should also mention before we go any further, there is the 100th episode of Clubhouse coming up. It's going to be a bit of a celebration because it's a lot of episodes. Laika, can you jump in here and let everybody know? What- Hi. So before the Clubhouse, we're going to have a Zoom uh, meetup. Um, that's going to be on July 12 at 6 p.m. So everybody would drink together and have a Zoom call with us in the team. And um, it's like a premiere for tomorrow's, for the next day's um, 100th episode, which is um, going to be at July 13, 5.30 p.m. Matt Irwin will be interviewing Kiara Boskis. Okay. Well, that sounds good. So I'm going to bring on Antonio. Are you there? Of course I am, for having me. <laughs> no, thank you for coming. I'm going to mute myself, or rather I will just not speak. <laughs> and uh, let uh, Cynthia do her thing. Ciao, Antonio. Thanks for joining us today. Ciao, Cynthia. Thank you for having me today. Well, let me just share with everybody a little bit about you. Um, you've been the chairman of Feudi di San Gregorio since 2009. And you graduated with honors in economics and worked at Lazard in Paris from 1999 to 2003. Uh, You completed your studies with a Master of Science in Management and International Finance at the London School of Economics and a PhD in Banking and Finance. And in 2004, you worked for McKinsey, where you became a partner. But in 2009, at the young, young age of 32, you took over the helm of the family business, and that's where the magic starts. Yeah, or that's where uh, the dark side ends, and, uh, <laughs> we could also say. I mean, that's a bio, it's not the, the usual bio for someone who works in the wine industry. No, for sure. And I, I think uh, knowing you as I do now, you definitely made the right choice to leave, uh, <laughs> leave what you were doing before and, and start doing what you're doing now, which is running Feudu de San Gregorio. So... Um, Let's let's start talking about these old vines. I've been looking forward to this conversation all week. So, um, you know, we we all know Feudi and we love your wines and we refer to them often as benchmark wines representing the native grapes and the wine styles from your region, Campania. But you've you've got this important new project on your hands now, 
related to the old vines in your vineyards and the old vines in your piña in general, they need to be saved. Um, they're centuries old, pre-phylloxera vines, and they've survived into the modern day. And you told me that they constitute a unique heritage, but also a gateway to the future. So when did you get interested in focusing on old vines? Uh, the, the winery was, I would say, always interested in this focus because we could, mostly on a viticultural standpoint, we could uh, leverage such a diversity of different biotypes uh, ungrafted. Uh, and this was something that, uh, first of all, our agronomist, Paolo Sirk, always wanted to investigate. So even before I joined, the winery started between 2003 and 2010 a study with the University of Milan and Naples actually to analyze all the different biotypes that were selected from this, in particular from this unique vineyard that you visited with me uh, that is called Vigneto d'Arre, that is made of over 400 different prephylocera plants. Personally, I when I joined, I think the biggest thing I had to learn when I moved from finance to to, to the wine business actually was the value of time in general. Time in finance is perceived mostly as a cost. In our world of wine and vines, time is a value. And for me, this was probably the most important lesson I learned when I visited this vineyard was that this vineyard and this heritage, this history, represented an incredible value for us. When I understood also that all vines could help us in tackling uh, climate change consequences on viticulture, then I was immediately in. So we continued studying what we started before. And I would say that since I joined the winery, we continued focusing on this quite extensively. Well, I, I know that it's not been easy for you. You were explaining to me how um, so many of the parcels of old vines in our in our piña are owned by you know, several family members, um, and a lot of them have been sort of let to go, and they haven't been cared for, looked after for a while. Uh, and I know that supporting these small farmers financially and helping them preserve and protect old vines is something really important to you, and part of the future that you described as well. So can you just explain to us why these farmers need your help and, and what you're doing to support them? Uh, so a couple of data, first of all. I mean, uh, first thing is that in over a century, the surface cultivated in Irpinia was reduced by half. So it's one of the few regions in the world where we have less vine that is, by the way, a good region for winemaking, where we have fewer, you know, a, smaller, a much smaller surface than we used to have at the beginning of the 20th century. This is because the viticulture is quite complex. It's complex because the varietal are not easy, because the slopes are very significant and so viticulture cannot be made mechanically, it needs to be manual. Uh, it's difficult because the yields are very limited for a number of reasons, the soils, the varietal, and also the inclination. Uh, so, and because the property is very fragmented, we never had the big, in, uh, large surfaces like in Tuscany because we didn't, we never had the noble families, but historically our area was property of the church and then was split in different uh, uh, farmers' estates, and each farmer within this small estate could um, grow not only the vines, but also olive trees, fruit trees, etc. So there is a structural element that supports 
this situation. No? The, such a small parcel uh, uh, where you have different uh, different cultivations uh, is more and more complicated to to be kept in an economic and sustainable way. So when we arrived uh, in 2009 with Pierpaolo, we decided to launch a program for, for these farmers because actually the other thing that is important to know is that they take care of their parcels much better than what we could do as owner. So in, in these 15 years, we had to purchase some of their, of their lands because the kids didn't want to do the same job, but we tried as much as possible to keep them there because they knew their estate by heart. They knew exactly vine by what vine what they needed to do. So what we did concretely was to make, uh, uh, to keep uh, rental contracts, but to give them uh, total protection against um, against the climate, climate situation. So basically they are paid whatever happens to the production. Secondly, we support them financially to all the possible investment that they may need to keep the estate. And third, we give them a warranty that if they want to sell, they're going to sell to a predetermined price. But we want to keep that as long as possible. So that's basically the program that then we uh, completed in 2016, where the, all the new contracts came in place. And I think it was successful because over the past uh, seven, eight years, we didn't have so many uh, dropping out as we had or because they thought it was uneconomical to continue managing. And for us, the incredible diversity of Euphemia is not just having three wonderful varietals, one close to the other, or having such a diversity of soils or age of vines, or all the things we all know, but it's an incredible uh, poten- diversity of experiences. And I think so many farmers, the real ones, that in Europe we are almost not used to see anymore, uh, it is for us an incredible possibility uh, of knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, it's amazing to see when, when we were there um, how diverse every single parcel is. Um, I, I know some of the existing vines I visited with you just a few weeks ago. You know, as we have said, they're ungrafted and they're up to 180 years old in some places. How have these vines survived so long? Um, and, and what are you and your team doing to preserve them into the future? What, what varieties are growing in these old, old vineyards? That, that's a very good question. And this raises a lot of very good additional questions. So in the first, I mean, answer, easy answer is which varietals. I mean, it's mostly Ayanico growing on the sandy soil, on the sandy ash, volcanic ash of Taurasi, where the phyllocera could not attack in, in particular at the beginning of the 20th century. So mostly in the Ayanico area, but we also have some old vines in the Fiano area. Now, the second question is how they survived. Actually, the lesson we're learning from this is that actually they tend to survive if the man doesn't make uh, disasters. No? I mean, a, uh, the, the pruning system, which is basically what Pierpaolo Sierk teaches with his potatoi duva, it's a, it's, a, it's a system that now is used almost everywhere internationally, is a system where the pruning is much more respectful of the life of the vine rather than on the productivity of a single given year of, uh, of production of the vine. So basically there was a change of focus in the way we prune the vine, uh, and this is something we are doing everywhere, but also this type of old um, cultivation methods, in particular mostly pergola, tall or small pergola, they prove to be more resilient 
to extreme climatic uh, events. It was more resilient when it's, it's very hot in the summer. It's much more resilient when it's very cold in the winter. It's much more resilient also when it, uh, we get the freeze at the beginning of the, of the spring that usually is the very detrimental to the, to the production. So there, there, are, and th- th- there are many, many technical reasons for that that we can speculate about. But we're doing a project now in particular on the Greco di Tufo where we're trying to understand what's the best cultivation technique to handle the effects of climate change. And uh, we are, this has been going on for like five or six years. And we are discovering a very simple thing that actually the most effective ways of, uh, of ending this is using the old uh, techniques, pergola or tenicia, because the grape is more protected, um, more protected in particular to the exposure of the sun. And I still remember a farmer that told me, when we presented his work, he told me, Antonio, we could have told you this for free without having to do a five years uh, study with the university. So there is a lot, uh, most of the things that explain the way this vine survived has to do with the experience of the man that worked on them and protecting them rather than just trying to maximize the productivity. Let's talk about this for a second, because it, it is so important. I know, um, and I think tenechia is probably a term that not a lot of people have ever heard before. So can you just explain what tenechia is and why it works as well as it does? Uh, the first, it, it works well in our area. And of course, it doesn't work well everywhere. Uh, but these ancient systems, sites such in Puglia, you have the alberello and other small tree that works better in certain conditions. These old systems that are not mechanical, you cannot use any machine to harvest that, that, that are probably uh, are tough also to handle because you cannot really, uh, you cannot really work uh, easily on the, on the vine. Either you have, to, you have to go down on your knees or you have to go up on ladders. These systems, they are not particularly economical, but they, are, they prove to be better. I mean, Tenechia is a system that is pretty similar to the pergola. So the, the, the vine grows high, mostly at two meters. So we are not going at three meters, such as there are also examples of the pergola at three meters. But on average, Tenechia is between 150 and two meters. And then the vine spreads in different directions. It can be, it can create a ray. So going in five different or six different directions. And then you have such a similar to a labyrinth, you know, the, the, the vineyard at the end, when you walk in this, you almost have the perception of it being in the middle of a labyrinth. Or it can go just on the four direction, north, south, east, west. And then it creates a nice square where you have vines all around. In all these different systems, there are two effects. The first one is that the grape is protected by the leaves, in particular in the summer. And the second is that the grape is also a little bit higher, it's kept a little bit higher from the ground. And this is particularly interesting for varietals such as Greco and Dallianico that are very delicate and they risk in particular in the days prior to the harvest when the grape is uh, almost mature, the risk of the skin gets uh, perishes and then you lose everything. So the fact that they are protected from the humidity coming up from the soil plays a a crucial role in protecting the grape at the end of the cycle. Okay. I, I just want to touch back again, too, about the pruning, because uh, I remember Pierpaolo telling us that um, 
some of the most damaging things to to vines is drastic pruning. So I know you're doing your pruning differently. Can you just explain a little bit how the pruning is done there to maintain these vines? Yeah, the drastic pruning, I mean, what you call drastic, I mean, there are two things that are bad for uh, a vine, actually. Not doing any pruning at all for a long time um, or do a, a drastic pruning approach to aggressive pruning approach. Uh, what we do, of course, we prune every year, but we also prune in a more respectful and gentle way. This has a lot to do with what I was saying before. The more you protect the previous year wood that has been formed by the plant, the more it allows the plant to continue developing on this on this on this wood and not starting back again from the start. So drastic pruning, what he calls drastic pruning, means that at the end of each harvest, when you prune at the beginning of the new you know, the new season, you want the, the vine to redo the old cycle from the start, from zero. This tends to be very intense. For the, for the vine. And this is why in most of the regions you have to replant everything after 15, 20, 25 years. This is also a way, in most cases, to have a higher yield. But then it's detrimental to the life cycle of the vine. What it does, what we do in terms of pruning, that now is done in many, many regions, now the regions that are more attentive to quality that are more attentive to long-term or more attentive to sustainability. There are areas where you still have a lot of drastic pruning happening. Um, what we do is that actually every year we cut around the existing the existing uh, wood and we allow the plant to continue growing on that progressively. This is also a way, it could seem romantic, but actually it is proven. This is also a way that the the divine keeps track of what happened the previous vintage, the, the vintage before that, and the vintage before that one. So that's why, in particular, in the oldest vines of Taurasi, we have a very good resilience from a good to a bad year. The vine, the vine adapts pretty well, reduce automatically the yield. So it, it carries less fruit when it's a, a difficult year or it gets less, less water. We don't need to intervene. The old vines are the only ones where we don't do anything actually during the cycle except for the pruning we don't need to take our leaves we don't need to, to do green harvest we don't need to do anything and that has a lot to do with the fact that the vine keeps memory and to allow the vine to keep memory you you shouldn't cut it every year to uh, the bone well it's, it's just like the old farmers the vine the old vines know what they're doing they don't they don't need your help so. absolutely <laughs> Well, you told me that one of the biggest problems surrounding the concept of old vines is that there is no existing legislation or even vocabulary to really discuss these vines properly. What, what do you think needs to happen to get the message out about old vines and their importance and sort of legally define them? I think this is, uh, this is uh, particularly, I mean, this is a missed opportunity. I don't think it's dangerous for the old vine movement, but I think it's a missed opportunity because I think that there is a lot going on in different areas of, uh, of uh, wines, no? organic, sustainable. There are many things that people care about, not biodynamic. And I think the old vine viticulture is extremely interesting. It could be extremely appealing in terms of storytelling to the consumer because it puts together quality, long-term sustainability, and an adherence to the roots that is pretty, pretty uh, relevant. And also is a distinguishing factor between, you know, the areas that are originally suitable for making great wines and the areas that are more newcomer, 
more, you know, they are more playing a, a forced role in the winemaking arena. So I think there is a missed opportunity if we don't do something about it. I know it's very complicated. The thing we were discussing together is that there are no standards and it's not easy to set the standard because you you have two extremes. One is that you go for you really the old, old vines. So you go over a century, you go to the vines that are before the philosopher because they keep an heritage that uh, is actually before the, the, the fact that everything was replanted with an American food, so they are grafted vines. So you go with the definition that is very specific. Then the other extreme is that you 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 pay a tribute to every wine uh, viticulture that doesn't replace the, its its vines after thirty years. So you say over thirty years, it's already an old vine because you are doing something to protect them rather than you know turn them turn them down after a, cy- a normal cycle. Uh, of of, uh, of uh, life for a vine, and within these two extremes, we need to do something to communicate this properly. And today, if you have a two, uh, you know, a broad, a, a broad uh, definition, so everything above thirty years is all vine. I think you risk of doing something a bit confusing, like everybody can call itself a, they can call himself a, an old viticulture. Uh, and maybe the definition is not particularly distinctive also for the experts. Uh, if you go, which is where I would prefer personally, but because I'm a little bit partisan, of course, because of the area I come from, when you go for all these vines and you go more from the pre-philosopher definitions so over a century, um, then you need to make sure that you still consider also the merit of people that work in the vines that are much more much younger in a way to make them become older. So I think there is a lot to do in terms of communication. There is the producers are not able to uh, together, and I, I say that to myself as well because I'm producing several wines that come from old vines. We are not able to communicate this properly. We are more looking into saying I'm the I have the oldest vines compared to the others, rather than say okay, there is a movement. There is a lot of knowledge shared. This old vine conference is an example, Cynthia, but there are many other uh, areas where experts are putting their forces together to you know, to really bring this knowledge out. Uh, we should do this together and we should try to regulate this to the wine connoisseur because I'm sure that the cu- people would be curious and eager to know and taste those wines. Absolutely. I think there's a huge audience for old vines and the wines that they make. Um, they're, they're so unique and they're so interesting. Um, and I, I know you're working with Professor Escienza and the University of Milan to use the genetic, the genetic material that are generated from your old vines to grow new vines that will carry the same DNA and the same characteristics when you replant. So can you just explain how that's working and the results you've had with your new vines that you have grown from the genetic material from the old vines? Yeah, I mean, results, uh, I have some to share, uh, but uh, there is, uh, of course, it's in viticulture, everything needs more time. Italian Wine Podcast, brought to you by Mama Jumbo Shrimp. First of all, let's, uh, let's uh, I tell you what we did. Uh, and this, as I told you, started already in 2003. They did an individual analysis of each of these old uh, biotypes. Uh, and then we could select, by planting them uh, in new vineyards, we could select five or six of them that were, proved to be more qualitative because we also worked with Professor Moyo from the University of Naples doing examples of 
uh, doing uh, you know uh, analysis of the grapes that were produced by each uh, biotypes in five six year different vintages so to have a, an average that could make sense uh, five or six biotypes were selecting being the more interesting in terms of quality in terms of yield in terms of resilience to, to diseases in a six vintages time frame and then we planted them in in our new vineyards um, the adva- there is an incredible advantage of having different biotypes rather than a clone uh, this is you can see it in the vineyards immediately when there is a disease when there is a when there is a, a there's a, a shortage of water there's a, there is a reaction that is differentiated within each line and this is good because it gives a way of um, you know minimizing or diversifying the risk of losing everything or getting uh, an impact of the diseases that is bigger, to have this variety allows you to to diversify your 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 risk. Uh, on average, so far, but there are only there's we just did a few harvests, so we don't have conclusive data. As I told you, on average, we had higher yields and better quality of the grapes measured by all analysis possible analysis um, coming from those vines rather than the ones that we planted before from. Uh, selected clones. Uh, so there is a lot going on, but we are definitely planting everywhere now these old biotypes. And I think this, this variety of, of, of genetic options uh, is key to, the, to our future. And this is also the reason why I say that these old vines are the gateway to our future when you, you quoted that at the beginning of this talk. Which which varietals are you working with most? You touched on Alianico and Greco. Which of the varietals are you doing this work with? Mostly Alianico on this. Yeah. Okay. Mostly Alianico. We do something also on Fiano, but on, uh, we don't have the same genetic material on Greco and uh, even Fiano compared to, compared to Alianico. Greco is also, the viticulture is quite more complicated. They were very, there are fewer examples of vines that survived so long. Um, so we are trying to do the same progressively on on Greco, but uh, but the focus on our work is on Ayanico. Well, I'm I'm gonna drag you over to the Greco side because uh, even though I've always loved the beautiful Alianico wines that you make, the Taurasi, Serpico, Sirico, Dalray, I I love them. Uh, but when I was at Fiori with you, I fell in love with your wine Goletto, which is a Greco yeah. di Tufo wine that you're producing at Tenuta Capaldo, um, pretty near the 12th century Goletto Abbey that was destroyed by the earthquake in 1980. And I was happy and lucky to be sitting with Professor Scienza and, and Pier Paolo talking about this. And they said the vines are about 30 years old. So, you know, as you said, some people would say they qualify as old, but they're actually pretty young in terms of Feudi de San Gregorio. Um, but you said this wine was born the way you like to work, with your feet firmly on the ground, and your eyes staring at the generations to come. Um, and I know that the wines are made in a combo of Tonneau and the beautiful amphora that I saw with you in the, in the cellar. Um, do you see the future generations working in these careful and timeless ways? You know, Greco is a difficult grape. Do you see this project going forward? I think so. I think we have a, uh, honestly, we, our area is famous for all three indigenous varietals, probably mostly Alianico. But I think, on the contrary, we have an incredible potential on the white wines, Fiano and particularly Greco. I think uh, that this potential has to do with the fact that there are not, there are very few areas where you have 
all the perfect conditions for making great white wines in the world comparing to how many areas you have to make a great red. So I think there is a more distinctiveness in Erpinia for the for the whites. And in particular, I'm in love with Greco because Greco, being such a neutral varietal by itself, vehiculates the incredible richness of the soils it grows on, and in particular on the uh, sulfurous mines, um, you know, where the Goleto vineyard is located. It grows over a, one of the largest sulfurous wine mines of Italy. So that's the wine has specific characteristics coming from that. Having said that, I think that the future generation will continue to do that because there is no shortcut in what we do. And I think the curiosity of the international wine lovers is growing and is encouraging this kind of sacrifices. It was more complicated for people before us, actually, than for people who follow us. They have, they have today an audience of consumers that is much bigger and an enormous number of ways of communicating this passion, considering also what we're doing now. Uh, so there are potential to talk to everyone, everybody in the world and make every experience uh, known worldwide. So I think there are many new, there are many opportunities to give value to such a sacrifice. So I'm very confident that future generations will be as patient and as uh, timeless, you know, as you said, as oriented to long-term than uh, the previous generation were. I certainly hope so, because the wines really show the love when you're tasting them. Uh, they're, they're very special wines. So it, it's it's funny, though, because you, you also said that um, you know, Irpina is not the first place people think of when they talk about Italian wine. So... You know how how are you going to get more people on side with um, Irpinia as as a hotspot for Italian wine you know, of really high quality? What's the marketing and education like for the area? How are you getting the message out about quality and the level of work and attention and care and study that's going on in Irpinia right now? I think there are two. Uh, let's let's answer with two different uh, parts. No, there is one thing that we're very that is inertial that we're lucky about it. There is an inertial uh, increasing interest in the international wine lovers to get to know unusual territories, unexpected varietals. And we are in unusual south, we are all in the mountains with approximately 200 days of rain with this incredible soil. So there is an increasing uh, willingness to discover. There is an increasing curiosity. And we also give, in terms of hospitality and everything, the possibility to come and visit us. But there is an inertial movement that is helping us. Then, So that's a positive thing, and I would say we're, we are there for nothing, uh, and we will benefit from this. There is, So I think it's the best moment for bringing out in the world uh, stories like indigenous varietals, stories like... Uh, uh, you know, traditional farming, old vines, all the things that actually are part of our heritage. There is a second part where we do something, and we 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 always have to do more. I believe that there is also that there is one bringing out vines wines that represent such a complexity. And you know about our Feudi Studi project, this collection of uh, small single vineyards that we do mostly for educational, and every year we do twelve different single vineyards where we put in a, in a bottle a little bit the, the, by diver, the diversity and the complexity of our different parcels, now, some of them. Uh, the, maybe the large consumer is not ready to drink four different Grecos from the same producer, but the people that are really into wine, they're ready to drink it and talk about it. So also we can, what we are doing is bringing out wines mostly for educational reasons, but they actually represent 
the complexity and diversity. Once again, uh, no shortcut. The second thing we can do is that we need to work to create knowledge about it. So we work to create, we're going to be ready in a couple, probably in a couple of months, we work on creating an encyclopedia about Irpinia where every town of every appellation is descriptive in terms of soils, in terms of inclination, in terms of the most interesting vineyards there. And it's not just done for Feudi di San Gregorio wines, but all the wines of the, of the area. And that's going to be available in two months. We have been working on that for five years with local journalists. It was a massive effort that is connected with the Feudi Studi project. Third is the, is the, class, are the classic things, now traveling around the world with the bottles and also being ready to welcome uh, with the top-notch hospitality is something we invested heavily on because I think that even if you are in an unexpected place, even if you are in a new rural area, you want to have the people visiting this and experiencing and having a wonderful time in seeing the winery, visiting the vineyards, taste the wine. So also this is something we are working uh, strongly uh, and we will continue working on the next, on the next years. That sounds fantastic. And having uh, been there and seen what you've created for um, hospitality, I can definitely recommend that everyone should go and, and take a look and spend some time with you. It's absolutely beautiful and, and stunning uh, and really a showcase for the wines and the vines and the grapes and everything uh, that you're accomplishing in Irpinia. And I know that you've also got um, a cornerstone of what you do at Fiudi is the belief that a bottle of wine and a work of art share the same creative process. Um, how is that affecting the wines you're creating? You, you do a lot with, with different art and different artists. Um, what's, what's going on with those projects? I mean, I think the, the, there is a common uh, trade union that is uh, for many winemakers, but there is a common trade union uh, between art, wine, design, uh, that is beauty, research of beauty, research of long, long-lasting beauty. Long-lasting is not is quite important as an attribute to this beauty. Uh, we started our talk today with the concept of time. Now, I told you that time was one of the things that was more difficult, different from my previous experience in the world of wine. Uh, I think time is also what makes uh, what make what brings together wine and art, for instance, because when you do the wine, I, I'm not saying you're an artist because we don't want to be pretentious that much, but I think you're doing something starting from your past heritage and experience, such as an artist does with his uh, creation. You're doing today, but you're doing for the generations to come because your art, as such, uh, similarly to the wines, will be enjoyed for a long time after that. This relationship, for me, is important. This relationship is important not just for communicating the wine but also to encourage the people that work within the vineyard the, uh, the winery to think of themselves as people that are protecting an heritage but bringing in the contemporary time this has been always our approach to, to have a contemporary approach to our heritage which doesn't mean forgetting our past in the contrary now all our discussion about old vines in a way, supports that, but to try to communicate that in contemporary world to the contemporary and the present consumer of today with a communication that is not nasty, with a communication that appeals to the same value, with the contamination of, of other realms of creativity, such as art, such as design. And the art is also one of the cornerstones of our community program because 
there are there is no possibility for an individual winery or an individual producer to be successful without creating a stronger community around it because people when they come and visit just to make a very simple example in terms of hospitality they need to find an overall system around the winery that is receptive to that so art is at the center of our uh, benefit the b corp program so we invite artists to do um, to do artistic pieces in the winery and then we ask them to do bottles that then we sold for free for local foundations so art for us is also a vehicle to you know to not only to make the winery more beautiful but also to make the community more tight and more uh, careful of what we have in our hands that is indeed quite exceptional and i think you've you've hit hit right at the core of it everyone feels invested in what you're doing um which is so important with a project on this sort of scale so when we were together, we also talked about how much Massimo Vignelli meant to you as a mentor and a collaborator and a friend. And he meant so much that you put a quote from a fax he sent you on the gate of the winery. And it says, fundamental for success in work, vision, courage, determination. He who does not possess them deserves to fail. This is this is pretty stern stuff to have on the gate of your winery. So what does this philosophy mean to you in your everyday work? How are you inspired by Massimo's quote and, and driving forward all of these many, many projects you've got going? Yeah, Massimo, for those who, who don't know him, Massimo Vignelli was one of the most important Italian designers of all times, and he worked on our corporate identity, graphic identity, on the creation of our labels, on everything for with us. They passed away in 2017, but he worked for us for, 15 years, basically, from 2002 to 2017. Now, uh, the, 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 the quote that we put at the entrance of the, of the winery was actually coming from a fax that sent me, and it was not a com uh, compliment, it was actually a reprimand. So he wrote me this because he thought that I was lacking vision, courage, and determination to drive, to, to drive this company towards its success and sustainability survival. No? Because I, I may... Uh, I, I was taking a decision that they would not agree with. And I think for me, then, of course, I changed my mind. Uh, the, 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 the thing about it, because the facts was pretty strong, and the idea of putting this there is, first of all, you can do mistakes. We did many, many mistakes in our world. But first of all, in our lives, sorry. But first of all, you need to be ready to recognize that and change your mind. And second, you need to be able to uh, regenerate from your mistakes. So in case you... In this, in this specific case, I stopped before making a mistake because I got good advice. But in case you do a mistake, which happens all the time, then you need to be ready, you know, to stop that uh, and then regenerate from this mistake and find the right path. So uh, for us, for me, this quote is represents very well the spirit of this winery that is a, you know, is, is a contemporary winery in, a, in an area of incredible heritage is a winery that always tried different ways of expressing itself, not just in the classic uh, ways that wine does. And it's a winery that is happy and proud to share its history, also when, when it's made of mistakes. Well, I think it's a great quote, and, and I know how much he meant to you, and I'm sure that uh, he's very proud of the fact that you are following his very stern words of wisdom to the letter. Um, it's, it's incredible what you're accomplishing and so many things on your plate. I didn't know about the Encyclopedia of Irpina, which sounds like an amazing project. Um, I just want to thank you so, so much for coming on today and explaining all of this about the old vines and everything else that's happening at Fiuti. 
uh, especially the, the Greco and how you're sort of taking the Old Vines project and the replanting out and spinning it out into the world and, and getting this moving. So thank you so much for your time. I'm going to turn this to Joy to see if there's any questions from people who are listening. So bear with me for a second. Hi, that was really interesting. Um, I don't see any questions. Laika, do we have any questions? Yes, I see a question from Paul Bologna. Um, so he's asking, what age of a vine, in your opinion, would constitute old vines? Oh, and he said, answer, thank you. It would be nice if every region tracked its oldest vine. So that's what he said in the chat. Yes, we answer to that. Is there a project where all the regions of Italy might be looking into old vines in each place? Do you know? No, there is none at the moment. Well, that's something. <laughs> but it should be. Angelo Saccolo, our Italian wine ambassador, also said, excellent interview. So, yeah, okay, it's very Sorry, impressed. my bad, everybody. I think I only have one, one question to ask, because um, I know that there's also old vine projects in Chile and in Australia. Do you happen to have any um, contact with other regions that have old vines um, to talk about the best way to manage them or anything like that? We, we, we had some contacts in the past, uh, but it's, we are part of this old vine conference. And this association now that started uh, three, four years ago uh, is helping to bring people together to talk about these issues. So I think that in the past, this happened only, you know, uh, sold, uh, rarely, I would say. Now it's becoming more and more structured because there are associations that are, uh, in particular, the Old Bank Conference, but I'm sure there will be others in the future that bring together people experiencing uh, the relationship with Old Vine. So now in a more and more structured way, this is happening. Okay. Well, Antonio, thank you so much. And of course, thank you so much, Cynthia, who is... Thank you. Um, yeah, no, this is really, really exciting. And I appreciate you both spending the time to come on here and uh, talk about Old Vines and what, the work that you're doing. And uh, this is going to be airing on the Italian Wine Podcast soon, of course. And uh, I should probably do the, the thing. Hold on. Uh Okay, there we go. <laughs> All right, Laika, um, I think you've already mentioned the next clubhouse, which will be the 100th anniversary. Am I correct? Uh, no, that uh, that 100th clubhouse is going to be on July 13. So the next one is um, next week on June 9, June 29. So at 5:30 p.m. our original uh, our regular slot. Um, it's going to be Kevin De Vicente, and he will be interviewing Paolo Montioni of Montioni Winery from Montefalco. Okay, well, fantastic. I guess I'm going to close the room now. I hope everybody has a wonderful evening. Thank you again for joining us on Clubhouse and we'll talk to you all soon. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time.
Chin Chin.